This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York. I'm recording this episode on July 10th, 2020. COVID-19 rages on in the United States. WWE has a new chief financial officer. We'll bring some context to WWE's declining TV viewership. Maybe we'll get to some of the things that I meant to get to last week. And you, yes you, can be a part of WrestleNomics Research. I'm doing a survey to try to better understand the wrestling audience. You can find it at WrestleNomics.com. You can find it at VoicesOfWrestling.com. We'll talk about that. But first, some news. According to Pro Wrestling Sheet, more people who are at WWE's Performance Center have tested positive. For COVID-19. This comes after Renee Young, Jamie Noble, Caleb Braxton, and Adam Pierce all publicly confirmed on social media that they had tested positive for the virus. Pro Wrestling Sheet believes at least 30 people at this point have tested positive for COVID-19 who are working or have worked at the Performance Center. WWE has reportedly administered 1,500 tests since they began testing for COVID just a few weeks ago. Daily new cases per capita in the United States continue to be much higher than many other countries in the world. Cases per capita in the U.S. are some 18 times higher than the U.K. or Canada, some 150 times higher than Japan. Things are even worse in the state of Florida, though, where daily cases per capita are almost three times as high as that of the United States overall. Daily new cases in Duval and Orange County even over-index compared to the state of Florida overall. If you've listened to WrestleNomics in the last few weeks, you know that Duval County is where Jacksonville is, where AEW tapes. Orange County is where Orlando, Florida is, where WWE tapes, where Disney World is scheduled to reopen tomorrow. The NBA is also scheduled to start playing games in Orlando at the end of this month. Some of those games will compete head-to-head with WWE and AEW. More on that later. And back to coronavirus and some information that has just come across the WrestleNomics desk. WWE Executive Vice President Paul Levesque, also known as Triple H, was interviewed by Yahoo Sports in an article posted Wednesday where he was asked about the wave of positive COVID tests within WWE, whether the safety measures have changed and whether there are plans to create a quote-unquote bubble to protect workers and wrestlers. Paul Vex said that this is a difficult experience and everyone's learning and evolving. Right now, we're testing all talent, he said, production crew, employees, everybody in advance of the television production, and we'll continue that for the foreseeable future. We have a mandatory mask policy now for all performers and staff when not on camera. All of this has changed. The testing procedures, as they become more available at an accurate level, there were a lot of people saying they were testing at the beginning and doing rapid testing with some questionable accuracy. We were doing what the guidelines with the CDC, what our medical staff were telling us were the most beneficial procedures for the health and well-being of our talent and staff and crew at the time. As the technology has advanced, and the ability to test people has improved. We have stayed on top of that as well. He went on. As far as the bubble strategy, everybody has a different take on this. My feeling is, yes, it's increasing everywhere, but our testing is increasing as well. I think we have been very successful in that. Prior to this recent wave, what we were doing was working. We didn't have a massive outbreak. As things increased, what we have been able to do, in my opinion, has been to protect the people that come in and participate with us in the performances. When you see there are positives, that is the system working. That's people coming from where they live, where they're from, whatever exposure they have had. That's us stopping it before it gets into, I don't want to say bubble, because I don't believe you can do that to people and have them only around each other, our building. Everybody is going to be around others, their families, things they do in their personal lives. If they have had contact, are at risk or are putting others at risk, we are preventing them from coming in. Every time that we go to the Performance Center and leave, it is pandemic-level clean. We're doing everything we possibly can. It's worth noting that WWE only started testing at the Performance Center for COVID-19 at the end of last month. Levesque here notes that the positive test results of what Pro Wrestling Sheets reports is over 30 members of talent and staff. Those positive cases associated with WWE are evidence that 
Things are working. They're a good thing, according to Levesque. Where have I heard this before? Because we do more testing. When you test, you have a case. When you test, you find something is wrong with people. Meanwhile, another wrestling company, All Elite Wrestling, also running in Florida. While some people have had to stay home, including John Moxley and QT Marshall, they've had to quarantine as a precaution. There are no known positive cases within AEW, a company that started testing its talent and staff for COVID-19 some weeks prior. Somehow AEW was seemingly able to prevent or avoid positive cases, while WWE has not. New Japan Pro Wrestling returns this weekend to Osaka Joe Hall for some of the first events in pro wrestling with paying spectators in attendance when on Saturday and Sunday, New Japan holds the New Japan Cup final event followed by the Dominion event. Again, both of those happening in Osaka at a venue, Osaka Joe Hall at 33% capacity. But in other news, on Tuesday... WWE announced that it has hired a new chief financial officer, essentially replacing the ousted former co-president, former chief financial officer, George Berrios, in his place. Actually, member of the board of directors, Frank A. Riddick III, has been serving as interim CFO, but now, on a full-time basis, effective on August 3rd, one Kristen Salen, the former CFO for online retailer Etsy, Kristen Salen will be the new CFO for WWE. WWE's press release put out on Tuesday reads, Salen served as the first CFO of Etsy, where she grew the business from $895 million in gross sales to $3 billion in four years. She led and executed the company's IPO offering and built and managed its business development, strategic planning, investor relations, accounting, tax, and data analytics functions. The press release goes on, Salen also held CFO slash COO roles with Moda Operandi and Translation Enterprises slash United Masters and managed global media and telecom funds with Fidelity Investments. Earlier in her career, she served in financial analyst positions with Oppenheimer Capital, Merrill Lynch Investment Managers, and Lazard Ferries and Company. She sits on the board of directors and audit committee for both SiriusXM and Cornerstone on demand. According to her LinkedIn page, she is also a member-elect of the Board of Directors and Audit Committee for Endeavor, the talent agency that was instrumental in helping WWE complete its new round of U.S. TV rights agreements with NBC Universal and Fox. Longtime listeners of WrestleNomics will know that the CFO role, at least when George Barrios held it for WWE, is a big deal role for for WrestleNomics, uh, Barrios and the CFO was the one who was always doing the conference appearances. So not just the conference calls, uh, the quarterly earnings conference calls, but the periodic conference events where at least Barrios in his role with WB would go to conferences every now and then. They would be webcast. Uh, the audio would be webcast on corporate.w.com and he would give a presentation and then usually take questions uh, from a, a financial analyst or from the audience and talk about WWE business. So George Barrios was a key figure in the WrestleNomics universe, now seemingly replaced by Christina Salen. What else do we know about Salen's background? Well, she has a BA in political science from Vassar College, an MBA in finance from Columbia Business School. For about a year and a half in the 90s, she worked as an equity associate for a firm called SBC Warburg, an equity associate in Latin America retail and telecom. Looks like possibly her first job after education. She assisted senior analysts with research of Latin America retail and telecom sectors, performed background research, built earnings models, authored initial drafts of investment reports, and created marketing materials during capital market offerings. After a year and five months there, she worked as an equity analyst for Lazard Freres. No idea if I'm saying that right. Working there for just over a year where she developed stock recommendations for beverage and retail sectors in Latin America and Eastern Europe, 
and briefed institutional clients on published investment opinions. And she provided research support for investment banking activities. So some experience here in two jobs in the Latin American market, in an area that is important or could be important, could be more important to WWE, especially if it found a wrestling star who appealed to the Latin American market. But after Lazard Freires in 1997, she worked as an equity analyst again for Merrill Lynch, where she formulated investment opinions using both value and growth styles for retail, beverage, steel, and industrial sectors in emerging markets with 45 companies under her coverage. She combined qualitative and quantitative research and advised portfolio managers on equity positions and industry weightings based on valuations generated. Got that? That was for Merrill Lynch, where she worked for four years until going to Oppenheimer Capital, where she was a senior equity analyst for U.S. media and internet. She developed and implemented investment action on U.S. media, cable, satellite, and internet, synthesized research of the team, and created a cohesive investment view to present a portfolio team to external clients. So from here, it sounds like her career was more so focused on consumer goods, retail sector, beverage products, steel, industrial sectors. Now, perhaps in the early 2000s, focusing more on media. And she stays at Oppenheimer Capital until 2005, or actually through the end of 2005, and then moves in 2006 to Fidelity Investments as an analyst and portfolio manager of global sector leader, media, internet, and telecommunications is her title. She works for Fidelity Investments for seven years, where she managed five global telecom and media funds with about $1 billion AUM, that's asset under management, determined investment in global telecom, media, and internet with $20 billion allocated firm-wide, and she oversaw the professional development of the 10 associates and analysts on her team. And it looks like while she's holding this job at Fidelity Investments in October 2011, she becomes a member of the board of directors for a company called Great Bowery, which was formerly known as Trunk Archive. Great Bowery sounds like a talent agency. According to its website, founded in 2015, Great Bowery unites leading agencies in the fashion and luxury image-making industries with seasoned executives and iconic rosters of photographers, directors, stylists, hair and makeup artists, creative directors, illustrators, set designers, and more. Our collective places an unwavering focus on exceptional talent and powerful creative work. I would say that's a talent agency. And while she's still serving as a member of the board of directors for Great Bowery, which was, I suppose, previously known as Trunk Archive, still known as Trunk Archive, at this time in January 2013, she becomes the CFO for Etsy. And probably a lot of you, or at least I am, familiar with Etsy, the online retailer where you buy things that are unique and directly from sellers. All of these jobs, by the way, for Salen are look to be in the New York, I don't know, there's a, Fidelity Investments was in the Boston area, but others, uh, in the New York City area, the the Merle Lynch job in New Jersey. So she joins Etsy in Brooklyn, New York, where she becomes Etsy's first CFO. During my during my tenure, she writes on LinkedIn, Etsy grew from a $895 million in gross sales in 2012 to $3 billion in 2016. A strategic and an operating CFO, I oversaw business development, strategic planning, investor relations. Yeah, this is, is uh, where they got the uh, text for the press release. Uh, I scaled these teams from about a dozen employees when I joined to over 200 when I left. I also led and executed a private equity raise, a tender offer, a debt replacement, a debt placement, the IP transfer pricing, an IPO offering, and SOX implementation. So I know what an IPO offering is. It is the initial public offering when a company goes public and begins to sell its shares on the public stock market, but what is a SOX implementation? Sounds like SOX, X, or SOX refers to the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. It sounds like maybe this is something related to preparing a company to go public. Anyway, she goes on and writes, finally, I took on various operating roles at Etsy at times running marketing, communications, international, and areas of product development like search, payments, and shipping. And Salen served four years and three months as the CFO of Etsy, leaving in 2017, and a few months later joining United Masters as the COO slash CFO. 
And what is United Masters? United Masters uses proprietary data and technology, coupled with a deep expertise in music and marketing, to help artists independently grow their fan base and business. As COO, CFO, Salen writes, I worked with the founder to operationalize his vision from uh, the development of business strategy through ultimately the launch of the product. And if I go to unitedmasters.com, United Masters distributes your music, gives you tools to power your career, and unites you with the world's biggest brands. A record label in your pocket. So Salen served as the COO slash CFO for United Masters for one year and four months until October 2018, then moved on to Moda Operandi as the CFO. And if I go to modaoperandi.com, it looks like a women's fashion retailer, although it looks like they have men's clothes as well. While she was the CFO of Moda Operandi, she becomes a member-elect of the Board of Directors for Endeavor, again, a major talent agency led by CEO Aria Manuel. And uh, Endeavor, among its subsidiaries, is Zufa, which is the parent company of the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And she also, in 2014, became a member of the Board of Directors for Cornerstone On Demand, which is a leading a talent management system that provides recruiting, training, management, and collaboration solutions for businesses of all sizes. So it sounds like another talent agency. And as we mentioned earlier, she is also a member of the board of directors for Sirius XM. And I think everyone knows what that is, the satellite radio company. So board of directors stuff aside, the board of directors stuff is impressive, but a lot of movement for her uh, in a, let's see, starting with the, the Etsy role for four years, moving to United Masters for a year and four months, moving to Moda Operandi for a year and three months before now taking this job with WWE. Now, remember, George Berrios held the CFO role for, let's see, almost 12 years, coming on board in March of 2008. So he had that role for a long time. Actually, part of that time, his, t- his title was co-president for the last few years there. And WWE, by the way, we would expect them to make a major hire in the chief revenue officer or chief marketing officer role, which is the role that's vacated by the other former co-president, Michelle Wilson. Various, by the way, has not updated his LinkedIn profile. Uh, according to his LinkedIn profile, he is still working for WB, so no idea what he's up to. But notable that Stephanie McMahon on LinkedIn posted a message sharing the press release about uh, Salen's hiring, saying she was very excited. Salen herself shared the press release on LinkedIn writing, I'm pinching myself over this announcement. I'm beyond excited to join WWE as their next star wrestler, dot, 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 or CFO, dot, 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 whichever is a better fit, smiley face emoji. Such a great team, great brand, and company. Hashtag lucky. Notable that apparently Salen has not been briefed yet on the importance of always referring to competitors who compete in the ring as superstars. Someone who formerly worked with Salen Noted to WrestleNomics that Salen is excellent at explaining even very basic economic concepts to people who are unacquainted, and she's interested in gender diversity in finance, that she could probably get a, a, a lot of jobs in a lot of places because she has experience as a CFO. This person was surprised that Salen has chosen WWE, unless WWE has promised her to go in a diversity and women's empowerment direction, leading one to believe that Maybe Stephanie McMahon had a lot of input on this decision, which seems very plausible considering Stephanie McMahon is a member of the board of directors, in addition to being one of WWE's top executives in her role as the chief brand officer. So again, the press release says that she will be the CFO effective August 3rd. On July 30th, about four days prior, WWE announced that it will hold its Q2 earnings report and conference call. That's a Thursday conference call happening at 5 p.m. Eastern, just as it did last time. So that will be my next WrestleNomics holiday on Thursday, July 30th. And hopefully, just maybe, I will have a, a, uh, I don't know, a PDF to share with the world before then with a number of, oh, graphs and maybe some analysis. We'll see. So it'll be interesting to, uh, to hear who will appear on the conference call on July 30th. I would expect it to be mainly Vince and Frank Riddick. I'd be slightly surprised if Kristen Salen is, uh, uh, is, is speaking on the conference call. But certainly by the Q3 report, I would expect her to be on the call and saying quite a bit. 
the Q3 call probably happening in late October. But it'll be interesting to hear the Q2 results covering the period from April 1st to June 30th, the three months of April, May, and June, the first quarter for WWE that is entirely in this COVID-19 pandemic era with no live events whatsoever, at least no live events with paying attendees, likely negative effects to advertising revenue, which affects WWE in some ways, but not principally in, in, in terms of its TV revenue, which is guaranteed TV rights fees, at least when it comes to the big US TV deals. We also expect in Q2 the first influx of an upgrade in TV revenue from WWE's new number two TV market, the home of 1.35 billion people in India, where WWE a few months ago upgraded its deal with Sony in that country. I cannot confirm or deny whether there will be a Salen bingo card like there was a Berrios bingo card, but we'll see. And for a quick WWE title history, no, not, not a world heavyweight championship title history, not an intercontinental title history, but a chief financial officer title history. Of course, the CFO role being held in abeyance until now, or at least until August 3rd. But so as we know, before Christina Salem, there was George Berrios who held the role from March 2008 until January 2020. The press release on March 24th, 2008 reads, headline, superstar George Berrios leaves New York Times for WWE ring. And this was, this was the day that it all began. George, George Berrios is the only CFO that I have known uh, as in, in my time covering W business to the extent that I have. But that press release in 2008 reads, Berrios joins WB as the company has been making headlines with record annual revenues and a recently announced boost of 50% in dividends paid to public shareholders. And that sounds right. I think WB used to pay, what, what would that be, a $0.06 cent quarterly dividend, now paying a $0.12 cent per share quarterly dividend, which also means that uh, Vince gave himself a massive raise. Uh, anyway, we welcome George Barrios as our new CFO, said Linda McMahon, CEO, yada, yada. Uh, Barrios was formerly vice president and treasurer of the New York Times company. He replaces Frank Serpe, who is retiring as CFO after 21 years with WWE. And who was Frank Serpe? Well, Serpe took the, took the helm in March 2007. So he was CFO for about one year. He was a 20-year employee with WWE. And he was acting CFO, who had replaced one Michael Selick, who was promoted from CFO to COO. And who's Michael Sillick? Michael Sillick had taken the CFO role in May 2005, when Sillick was named the new CFO and the newest member of WWE's board of directors. Before Sillick came to WWE, he was the CFO and senior vice president of Monster Worldwide. Yes, Monster, the job search search company, where he held a streamlining and rationalization of the company's various operating units and a successful spinoff of the executive search and staffing divisions into a separate public company. Perhaps more interestingly, uh, Silic served as CFO and senior vice president for USA Networks, that from 1999 to 2002, where he was responsible for, for financial activities of all corporate assets, including the USA Networks, Sci-Fi, Home Shopping Network, Ticketmaster, USA Studios, and USA Films. And look at this. He, Silic, who is now a former WCFO, is also a former vice president of finance for Sinclair Broadcasting, which he was from uh, 1996 to 1999, where he was responsible for all financial operations for the 60 television and 50 radio stations that belong to Sinclair Broadcasting, or did at that time anyway. They probably own a lot more. So again, that's Michael Silic, and Silic. If you search, if you search uh, Michael Silic WWE, you will find in the Google image search a picture of him holding yes the spinner belt version of the WWE Heavyweight Championship belt. There is in fact a similar picture of Michelle Wilson out there. But preceding M Michael Silic was CFO Philip Livingston, who became WCFO in March of 2003. So Philip Livingston, uh, before coming to WWE to work as the CFO, 
had an extensive financial experience, uh, a background as a CFO for the Catalina Marketing Corporation and the Celestial Seasonings, uh, the tea company, apparently. And Catalina, is, is that, that's not the salad dressing company, is it? But it's definitely the, the tea brand, Celestial Seasonings. A quick, where are they now? Michael Sillick, now the president at Sea Agri Solutions where he calls himself the president and self-employed, the president and owner of Sea Agri Solutions, a manufacturer and distributor of C90, an organic fertilizer and livestock feed containing 90 essential elements and minerals mined from the Sea of Cortez. Also serves as a, a member of the board of directors for multiple companies. Former CFO Philip Livingston, now the chief executive officer for Precision Camera and Video in Austin, Texas, Precision Camera is the heart and driving force of the Austin photography and videography community. So clearly for, I guess with the exception of, of Frank Serpe, who's a 20-year employee with WB, who's a, a, apparently, it sounds like he was in an interim role, sort of similar to what Frank Riddick is in, who's currently serving as the interim CFO for WB. Uh, Riddick also serves as a member of the board of directors and has for many, many years uh, but it has not otherwise served as a W employee, to my knowledge. But obviously, a, lo a lot of these you know, high-ranking executives in, in W corporate life, they don't come from uh, elsewhere in the wrestling business. Uh, it's, it's not as if you go from being a producer in Ring of Honor and an executive sales manager at Impact Wrestling, and then maybe you, you get hired into WWE, you climb your way up the ladder and become the CFO of WB and become one of the two or three most powerful people in Titan Tower. I don't know. I think it's especially in a in a business where within the fan culture, uh, we we read wrestling autobiographies and we uh, listen to wrestling interviews and shoot interviews and things like that. And we've n never really lived in a narrative, or I should say, heard a narrative where you have essentially non wrestling people. Uh, being very involved with the biggest wrestling company that there's ever been, um, which is strange to people. And it's strange to, well, it's it's not strange to the financial community. It's not strange to business people, probably. But when wrestling fans peek in on the conference calls or the conference presentations, and you hear somebody like George Barrios sort of commit gaffes and call his his favorite superstars, Sean Rollins and the Dragon, uh, what, what is it, Ricky the Steamboat Dragon, Although I do think, uh, consciously or not, Barrios in his last couple years at WWE, he made fewer gaffes and he used fewer buzzwords anyway. But anyway, the point is I don't, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with you know these highfalutin uh, corporate types who have MBAs, of course, and who have a, a lot of experience in media strategy becoming CFO. And I don't know I don't know where you would find an alternative candidate who has a great deal of background in the professional wrestling business. I guess. This is a challenge for some fans to understand because it's couched within the context of WWE has an enormous writing team, and we've heard that WWE likes to you know hire a lot of writers. And they like to hire a lot of writers who have worked in the television business, and sometimes maybe they even prefer to hire writers who don't have wrestling experience. You know, either because they want you know clean slate minds or because they don't like the tradition of wrestling that came before it perceptibly. But I, I think it would be valuable for I don't know, major W corporate executives to at least know certain things about W's history as a business. You know, particularly for one example that comes to mind is W's history in, in international markets. You know, maybe WB used In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy Slab Packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards, and yeah, you can open it, and look, it's going to be junk. You're, you, you know what I mean? Like You know what you're probably going to get in those. Maybe you find that fun. 
And sometimes I do. Sometimes I like just opening up cards and saying, ah, hey, look at some random cards or whatever. But if you're really in this game to, to find value and find particular cards, it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs. And it ends up being, you know, almost nothing. You know, nothing of value. Not with Arena Club. You can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading. So you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, I've got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. To be stronger in Latin American regions, and it's not now. And why is that? Is that tied to star power in any way? In fact, what is star power? Why is it important? How does it affect business? That's a big one I harp on. But what's the history of other areas of strategy? What's the history of the consumer's experience with pay-per-view events? What are pay-per-view events? How much did they cost? What was the story behind the strategy of converting to SVOD to the W Network? In live events, what's the history of of live events and non-televised live events in particular? What was the old model of business and how did we get to this one? That is, what was the old model of business that relied heavily on ticket sales and used media or TV as a promotional vehicle, as a marketing tool to where that structure has really been turned on its head? How did that happen? Why did that happen? When WWE's live event business was stronger at different periods in its history, what are some commonalities that those eras have in common? And could live events ever become a profitable division of WWE's business again? Or should that division be accepted as a loss leader? And should that division be leaned out and house shows cut down and expenses minimized so greater profits can be exploited from media. And, and by the way, for, for Christina Salen in her case, I mean, clearly her, her background is especially in media and in consumer products. And I suppose at this point, those are the two areas that are driving any measure of profit at this point. Live events uh, doesn't seem to be profitable. Who knows what the post-COVID future of live events is going to be, whether there's going to be anything, uh, any house shows again in the future, or very many per year at all but still uh, a great deal of profit coming from media and some profit coming from consumer products. So you can see in one aspect how the uh, sales pitch for her becoming CFO may have been made. Uh, will be interesting to see too if back by Q3 or Q4, maybe going into the new year of 2021, whether we see a big difference in how WWE reports its finances. WWE last made a change to its reporting method in 2017, it's made changes periodically over the years. Will we see a, a change to that corporate.wb.com? Will we still get a year from now, let's say, the trending schedules as they are now? Will we still get the key performance indicators as they are now? Do we see maybe the live events division altogether rolled up into a, a different form of reporting where live events is just part of the media division? We'll see. And speaking of media, we've got some WB viewership doom to talk about. WrestleNomics rolls on after this. The way we refer to this new situation created by the new uh, television massage or treatment of our senses, and uh, it is a, an evaluation 
made by the old uh, visual types looking in the rearview mirror as usual of something that is threatening the old values and uh, reversing the old values. Many of the things I talk about I find very irritating. Uh, that's what leads me to investigate them, you know. You, uh, you look around for a hair of the dog that bit you. I, I, uh, I look into many of the uh, new forms simply because I find them uh, very exasperating and irritating and troublesome to uh, peace of mind and so on. And uh, on the other hand, I've discovered to my amazement that if you take some violent and irritating process, say like radio or TV, and start looking at how it works, what it's doing to you and why it's doing it to you, you can get very enthralled, very excited. Uh, there is nothing sterile about television, except in the eye of the beholder. The, uh, you know, the, uh, the FCC type of uh, observation of television, the totally irrelevant, totally incapable of coming to grips with this form. Uh, when you speak of sterility, you speak of the movie programs that are shown on TV. Uh, you're not talking about television at all. So we'll continue to try to talk about the medium rather than the content. So this week for the main roster of WWE, on Friday, so last week's Friday, which was July 3rd, the day before Independence Day in the U.S., WWE did its lowest viewership yet uh, since moving SmackDown to the Fox Network. The fourth lowest total viewership in the history of SmackDown, at least that history since September 2014 that I have on record from Showbiz Daily, the second lowest key demo, 1849, uh, of, of SmackDown's history. Uh, it must be the lowest in the history of SmackDown on Fox, a .4 in the demo. And Raw followed up its performance the week before the last week of June, so that's, that's June 29th. That week, Raw did... Uh, one of its hours, which was which hour, the last hour of Raw on June 29th was the lowest uh, key demo performance ever for an hour of Raw. This week, July 6th for Raw, uh, a little bit better, but yet still the uh, three hours averaged the second lowest total audience ever, the third lowest key demo ever, key demo uh, of 0.49, which brings me to one of the metrics that I'm watching closely is comparing the key demo of either Raw or SmackDown uh, individually against the combined key demo, key demo performance for NXT and AEW. Uh, so this week, that number comes really close. So AEW and NXT combined a .48, just short of Raw's .49, but better than SmackDown's uh, .4. So again, this, the SmackDown number that we get from Showbiz Daily is only rounded to the nearest tenth, whereas the cable ratings that we get for Raw SmackDown or for Raw NXT and AEW are rounded to the nearest hundredth. So this 0.4 for SmackDown could represent anything from a 0.35 to a 0.44, I think. So NXT and AEW on this week doing better than SmackDown and doing almost as good as Raw and certainly within a margin of error from the Nielsen sample. Total audience, though, still well short. Uh, NXT and AEW combined doing about just under 1.5 million viewers. Uh, SmackDown still did 1.7 million. Raw doing uh, just under 1.7 million total viewers. So SmackDown this week, or this past week, by the time most people probably hear this, we will have uh, another SmackDown rating to look at. That, that number coming out from Showbiz Daily on Saturday morning or early Saturday afternoon. But SmackDown on this holiday weekend, doing its lowest performance uh, ever on Fox. And many people feel that the content is quite bad, especially on WWE main roster programming. And I've seen more discussion lately, more willing of what I sometimes call economic justice. Surely the wrestling business will, will punish those who create bad content. And if we were in still the old days where the wrestling business didn't rely on broadcast rights from media partners and relied on ticket sales, even if this was not a pandemic era, maybe WWE's declining ticket sales would economically motivate WWE to do something other than what they are doing now. 
and maybe would motivate the company to improve perceptibly the quality of its product, the quality of its content. So the questions have been raised again this week, the, the possibility that maybe Fox will run out of patience. The, the thought process is well, Fox is not a cable channel. This is network TV. This is big business. This is not the USA Network, for example, where WWE is the number one program on the network. This is Fox, where WWE is one of many other children that del- deliver similar results. And if WWE isn't doing well, well, maybe Fox is just going to push them off to FS1. And maybe maybe there's even outs in the contract. Maybe there's clauses that Fox could activate to get out of paying WWE the enormous TV rights fees that Fox has agreed to pay WWE to the tune of $205 billion per year for five years. That's on average over the lifetime of the contract with the fees getting higher throughout the five years. And if that happens, if Fox can get out of their contracts, then WWE will be punished finally for producing bad content that people are tuning out of. But that seems still at this point unlikely. But why? Sportico this week, the sports business news website, has an article where it mentions, among other things, what is the title of this article? Fox stashes cash for NFL rights with move to drop golf. So this comes after the news that Fox Sports has made the decision to turn over its U.S. Open golf package from Fox Sports to NBC Universal. Both of those parties happen to be major media partners for WWE. And this raises some people's ears when they hear, well, look, Fox Sports is, is backing out of, of one of its major sports deals. And maybe, maybe the next domino to fall is WWE and they'll finally be justice for all that crap that they're putting on TV. And I'm not disputing, by the way, that what, what they're putting out is crap. But the Sportico article from Anthony Krupe uh, goes on to, to write, Investors should be wary of interpreting Fox's divestiture as a sign that media rights valuations are about to take a pounding. The golf switcheroo was a reallocation of resources and a strategic shift designed to free up more cash for upcoming NFL rights renewal. So there's a lot of discussion of sports TV rights in this article, but there's specific mention of WWE. The article reads, Nor should you expect to see Fox try to wriggle out of its $1 billion deal with WWE. Friday Night SmackDown not only creates a four-day weekend for the network serving as a bridge between Thursday Night Football and college football, it also provides 52 weeks of programming at a cost of just $1.9 million per hour. Slap two dramas in that Friday from 8 to 10 p.m., and you're looking at an outlay of around $5 million per hour. And that's for just 22 nights of original first-run content. And that $1.9 million per hour number reconciles pretty well with uh, the reported $205 million, or 205, yeah, $205 million uh, average annual value that Fox is paying for SmackDown. Or if you multiply that by five, it's about $1 billion over five years. Or if you divide that down to 52 weeks per year for two hours per week, it comes out to you about $1.9 or $2 million per hour for SmackDown. The Sportico article goes on, while not a runaway hit, SmackDown is outperforming the former occupants of its time slot, drawing a 5% larger adult audience of adults, 18 to 49. Krupe writes, that's no mean feat in a season where overall primetime demo deliveries were down 13%. Moreover, the show has also had something of a rejuvenating effect on Fox's Friday night audience, with a median age of 52.4 years. SmackDown viewers are nearly five years younger than those who tuned in during the 2018 to 2019 season. So again, there's comparisons being made here. If, if Fox was to back out of SmackDown or cancel it or whatever they're legally able to do, and let's imagine they are able to do that. Economically, the alternative for Fox would have to be preferable to whatever the situation is with SmackDown. And what's being pointed out here by Sportico is, is that, at least at the moment, the alternative is not economically preferable. SmackDown costs Fox about $2 million per hour. If they got rid of Fox and put something else in the 8 to 10 slot on Friday night, it would cost them about $5 million per hour. And if they did that, they would only be getting 
22 nights of original first-run content versus SmackDown, which of course, pandemic or not, runs 52 weeks a year. Plus, SmackDown, as, as much as we can belabor the true fact that wrestling fans uh, tend to skew older, at least the traditional TV audiences do, in comparison to, say, AEW Dynamite, nonetheless, the presence of SmackDown on Fox on Friday nights has caused Fox's median age of its viewers to be almost five years younger compared to the previous TV season. And compared to the previous TV season, in the key demo of adults 18 to 49, SmackDown, according to Sportico, is drawing an audience that is 5% larger. And why why does the median age matter? And why does the 18 to 49 audience matter? Because those are metrics that are important to Fox to selling ads. An issue that you may know was recently litigated on Tony Khan's Twitter account, as well as Chris Jericho. So to, to check this for myself... On it, I think it was either Wednesday or Thursday morning, I sat down at showbuzzdaily.com and I went through all of the Friday network reports for the first half of 2019 and collected all the data for what aired on Fox on Friday nights and compared it to the first half of 2020 for SmackDown. And from January to June of last year on Fox, you had programs like Last Man Standing, The Cool Kids, Hell's Kitchen, Proven Innocent, MasterChef, Beat Shazam, and one instance of First Responders Live. And with that data collection, what I found is that this year, SmackDown's performance from January to June is doing 9% better in the key demo. And in the even younger demo of 18 to 34, SmackDown is doing 28% better than its predecessors. Although total audience is down by 18% in the 25 to 54 demographic is down by 5%. So while the previous programming on Friday Night on Fox may have been more useful for selling things like Centrum Silver, SmackDown in general may be a more attractive program to advertise with overall, with its, again, 9% improvement in the key demo 18-49 and 28% improvement in the younger 18-34. to One point, though, against possibly uh, putting something else Some other original programming in in SmackDown's place is that Fox could possibly own the content and then sell it to syndication or to a streaming service. Clearly, WWE After 30 Days owns its own content and puts it on the WWE Network or elsewhere. And of course, limited clips go on YouTube immediately. Nonetheless, that prospect is probably not valuable enough to offset the greater expense comparatively, as Sportico reports $5 million per hour of creating original programming to theoretically go into SmackDown's place compared to SmackDown's $2 million per hour when, for that price, SmackDown is giving Fox more than twice as many episodes of first-run content because it's producing first-run content every week. But it is notable to, to point out that uh, SmackDown is now not just sitting on the USA Network like it was previously or sci-fi before that. As the, I don't want to use crown jewel, I think that uh, the metaphor has been ruined. But as the top show or one of the top shows on the network, on the Fox network, according to the, the data found at tvseriesfinale.com that keeps key demo and total viewership data for all the original content for various networks, while Raw has been and continues to be, even in this pandemic era with its declining ratings, Raw continues to be USA's top show on Fox SmackDown is not the first, it's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. It's number 18 for Fox. The leader on Fox, if you're curious, are two different versions of the Mass Singer. I'm using uh, SmackDown's Q2 1849 average to get that ordinal placement. And again, on the USA Network, uh, the Q2 average for Raw and the key demo, a doing almost twice as well as its nearest competitor on the USA Network, the average for the latest episode of Queens of the South. I'm sorry, it's it's Queen of the South, isn't it? You can tell how much other TV I watch. But again, Queen of the South doing a .29 on average to Raw's .53, almost twice as well. Queen of the South, again, is the number two. Now, where, where does NXT lie in the hierarchy on the USA Network? Well, in, in Q2, its average in the key demo 
is at 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, number 6, with a 0.17 in the key demo. It is surrounded on either side by Season 2 of Dirty John, just ahead of it with a 0.18, and The Sinner, just below it, with a 0.16. I've heard of Dirty John. It's based on a podcast, I think. True crime stuff. Now about, but what about AEW on TNT? Well, apparently, and somebody can correct me if I'm wrong here, but there are only three other original programs on TNT, according to TV series finale, or at least those are the three that they're listing. Animal Kingdom, Snowpiercer, and Claws in the key demo in Q2. And by the way, when I say in Q2, I mean Q2 just for Dynamite. The other programs are being averaged by their season. So anyway, in this comparison, AW Dynamite in Q2 does a .26, which is just short of the other three programs. Animal Kingdom leading with a .33, Snowpiercer after that, 3.2, and Claws with a .29. So I don't think that any of the four big wrestling TV programs are at much risk, as unjust and frustrating as that may be. If anything, uh, maybe NXT, which we think maybe has a two-year deal or something, Maybe USA Network would think about whether or not they want to renew that when the, when the terms come up. I'm inclined to believe, though, that WWE is giving USA Network NXT for not very much uh, in return in terms of monetary compensation. I think there's a, a, a justifiable value to WWE that they have at least justified to themselves that they are going to produce an extra hour of NXT and film it live, or at least that that was the intent. I know it's not being li- filmed live now, but the idea is that they were going to do NXT to compete head-to-head with AEW, perhaps to head off or to directly address the risk of competition coming from a new, formidable wrestling brand. So I think as time goes on, we're going to continue to see new lows from at least Raw and SmackDown. And starting on July 30th, each of the four programs are going to end up going head-to-head with a flood of NBA games that are going to be nationally televised as sports return with no fans to the United States. Baseball starting up as well uh, towards the end of July. No nationally televised uh, Major League Baseball games going head-to-head with wrestling, although there will be, I'm told, regional sports programming that will air plenty of games. But wrestling about to face real sports competition that it has not faced in months. So brace for further declines in viewership, but probably no need to brace for the disruption of the hundreds of millions of dollars in TV revenue that benefits the pro wrestling industry. NXT, by the way, seems to be gaining momentum in its head-to-head competition with AEW. AEW still leading each week in the key demo, each week in most demos, but NXT leading in total viewership. NXT did, in the the last episode of June, actually beat uh, AEW in two other demos that we have through Showbiz Daily, the Female 12 to 34, the male 12 to 34. And that, that was on June 24th. AEW regained both of those demos in the following two weeks. And NXT continues to beat AEW each week with people over the age of 50. So many jokes are made about the, the P50 plus demo. And I, I think it is interesting and meaningful that AEW clearly has a, a younger audience than NXT. And NXT apparently has the oldest audience of the four big wrestling TV shows. However, I think it's worth pointing out or adding some nuance to the all this discussion about how much the, the key demo matters and how much the total audience matters. Does it matter? Uh, clearly, the, the, the P1849 demo is the one that matters the most for advertisers. So that means the most to the networks in terms of selling ad rates, which is the, the, the more variable part of their revenue besides carriage fees. But I would suggest that there's value in a total audience as well, you know, regardless of the age of the viewer, whether that viewer be 2, 18, 34, 49, 50, or 100, uh, somebody in that household, if you're watching on cable, and in probably most cases, even if you are watching on Fox, uh, somebody in that household is paying a subscription fee for a cable or satellite or what's being called the virtual MVPD service like Sling. Somebody is paying a subscription fee to gain access to the USA Network, possibly Fox, and that money that goes from the cable to the satellite company is going to networks like USA and Fox in the form of carriage fees. 
regardless of the age of the viewer. And the viewing of that program on that channel justifies the subscription fee to the consumer. Or maybe in other words, it keeps the bundle together. But another point that I don't see getting raised much at all, uh, again, as, as much as is, that is made of the older demographic, the 50-plus demographic watching NXT over AEW, while AEW dominates in all other demographics. That is mostly true. However, there's an important demographic that uh, NXT is competitive in as well. And actually, NXT wins just about every week in P50+. Plus. I think there's only one week where AEW beat NXT for the, for the P50+. Plus. But NXT is also occasionally competitive for female viewers. That's somewhat evident from the Showbuzz Daily viewership. And I've uh, managed to get my hands on some additional breakdowns. Uh, most importantly, breaking down the total viewership by male and female. So basically, we get, when we say total viewership, we're often referring to something that is listed as P2+, plus, which just means people over the age of 2. I also have a listing of M2+, plus and F2+, plus, which just means the male viewers and the female viewers total. And what we see is basically uh, AEW dominates for male viewership, but the total viewership of female viewers uh, on a weekly basis is about 50-50, or probably... Uh, a slight majority in favor of NXT. So when you think about the older audience, and again, so, so we got F2+, plus, uh, NXT winning it uh, slightly more than most of the time, on occasion winning the younger female demos, but not often. So when we think about the audience of NXT being older, I think the, the image, at least until I saw this data that I had in my mind, was some older man watching NXT rather than AEW, but it, it appears it is probably quite a few older women. So again, to make this more clear, in the entirety of Q2 from January, I'm sorry, the entirety of Q1 and Q2 from January to the end of June, NXT beat AEW in the M2 plus in male viewers in total only one time. And that was the last week of June. But in the total female audience, NXT beat AEW a total of 15 times out of 26 weeks. So 15 out of 26 weeks. NXT had a larger female audience than AEW. And it appears from the demos, since NXT isn't winning many of the younger female demos nearly as often, that apparently NXT is the preference of older women. Or I suppose it could be uh, younger women as well, since we I don't have any... Yeah, what I'm looking at is 18 to 49, 18 to 34, and 35 to 49. Showbuzz Daily does provide a 12 to 34 for both male and female audiences. And, and then we do have, a, you know, let's see here, two instances in 2020 where NXT beat AEW in the F 12 to 34. And that wouldn't, wouldn't include anyone under the age of 12. And there are some weeks for NXT that are just unknown in those demos because NXT failed to rank in the top 50 for the key demo. So the main point is, while yes, NXT is the home of older viewers... Uh, uh, more so than AEW is, NXT is also, or is at least more competitive with AEW for female viewers than it is for male viewers. And whether those female viewers are older viewers or younger viewers, more so, I don't have enough data to say. So that's all I've got for this week. That was uh, quite a bit more detail than I anticipated getting into. And so I, I have the survey. I said I would talk a little bit about, about the survey um, I don't want to say too much about the results yet and bias myself or bias you, the listener, who may take the survey. And again, you can take it at WrestleNomics.com or at VoicesOfWrestling.com, where you can find the link pinned to the top of the WrestleNomics Twitter account. This is a, a survey that it, it'll ask you a, a, a series of demographic questions and then ask you about your favorability uh, ratings for various major wrestling brands ask you about how you watch them, ask you about what wrestling streaming services you subscribe to, what your viewing habits are before, during, and after the COVID-19 pandemic, and what your viewership habits will be like as a result of the speaking out. So I'm hoping to learn a lot. Of course, the, the question will be how to view the population or how to view the sample of responses that I get or to see if there's any way to adjust the, the, the weight of the averages so that I get a more representative uh, interpretation of the general wrestling audience. But we'll see. You can, you can take that survey 
Today, I'll, uh, probably gonna be a few weeks or a month as I wait to collect responses and get another project out of the way so I can get to this one. And then begin to ask, I, I, what I'm learning is, is data is very much like a person. You, you, it doesn't just tell you everything you want it to tell you. You have to ask it questions. And then it may or may not give you an answer. And in fact, that answer may be ambiguous regardless. But that's it for this week. You can follow WrestleNomics at WrestleNomics. You can follow me at Brandon Thurston. And I've been Brandon Thurston. And I'll talk to you next time. Oh,